0: I don't like the way how art is defined only by the so-called elites. I think people come up with their own definition of what art means to them.
1: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, when the Asian art world gathers in Taiwan for the second edition of the Taipei Dongdai Art Fair, conversation in the aisles is sure to eventually land on the situation in Hong Kong. For years the undisputed art market capital of Asia, the tax-free mercantile oasis of Hong Kong has been rent asunder in recent months by unending protests and violent clashes with the city's armored police, who have filled the normally pristine streets with tear gas and rubber bullets. To date, more than 6,000 people have been arrested in what has amounted to a citywide uprising by millions upon millions of protesters who fervently reject the Chinese government's encroaching control over the autonomous Western-leading metropolis. So what exactly does this mean for art? Recently, Artnet News contributor Vivian Chow wrote a deeply moving account of her own experience as an art reporter based in Hong Kong who has found herself swept to the front lines, a traumatic experience that has made her look at art in an entirely new way. Today, we have Vivian on the show to tell us what it's like to watch a cultural hub turn into a war zone. Thank you very much for joining us on The Art Angle, Vivian.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So right now we're on opposite sides of the world, speaking via the magic of modern technology. Where are you at the moment? I'm at home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at home in Hong Kong. <laughs> okay. And you're a native Hong Konger, I believe. Is that right?
0: Yes, correct. Born and bred.
1: So what has it been like to be an art journalist in your native Hong Kong over the past half a year as protests have roiled the city and, and created chaos all over the, all over the metropolis?
0: It's traumatic as well as exciting at the same time. It's traumatic Mm. as a Hong Konger. It's exciting as a journalist. (laughs) I think regardless of whether you're an art journalist or a news journalist, basically being a journalist, there's nowhere else that can be more exciting than being in Hong Kong because there's... This is the biggest political turmoil that we have ever experienced. It's a cross world between the East and West. So as a journalist, if you want to get good stories, I feel that this is the place to be. But as a Hong Konger at the same time, it's emotionally traumatic because the streets have become sometimes a war zone. It's not something I could ever imagine I mean, growing up here.
1: So I know this is a very complex situation, but could you briefly explain how this came to be? What, what is it that the protesters want?
0: So the protesters, they keep talking about five demands, meaning the um, withdrawal of the extradition bill, which has already been withdrawn, and then amnesty for those who have been arrested. But on a bigger scale, uh, more important things are the independent inquiry into the protest, I think particularly police, excessive use of force, Mm -hmm. and uh, universal suffrage, which has been promised in the basic law, the city's mini-constitution.
1: But universal suffrage, if I remember correctly, it was offered in 2014, but then it was revoked. Why is universal suffrage so important in Hong Kong?
0: When Britain handed Hong Kong over to China in 1997, people were promised that they they can retain their freedom and then the city will be on its way to democracy, which already started in the 90s when they began the implementation of political reform. Mm. And people have been expecting universal suffrage, a genuine universal suffrage that is not screened by Beijing. The proposal from five years ago, a lot of people in Hong Kong found it problematic because it would only allow people to vote for candidates approved by Beijing. Mm -hmm. And that was not something people want. People want to choose their own leaders. People want to choose their own members of the Legislative Council. But then 22 years since the handover, this has never happened. Yet, people are getting agitated, for sure, because when Hong Kong was handed over, Hong Kong was promised 50 years unchanged under the one country, two systems. Mm -hmm. But now we're already more than 22 years into this 50-year period. And how much time does Hong Kong have? So some people find it very worrying.
1: So you've spent a good deal of time out there on the front lines of these protests, which are really driven by these bands of black-clad, gas-masked young men and women who are out there literally facing down the riot police on a daily basis. Why does an art journalist like yourself need to be in the midst of these violent clashes?
0: I think that... At the beginning, I would go to the protest just to you know feel the vibe, see how people react, see how people um, behave, especially for a major like mass uh, rallies that were mostly peaceful. But then later on, I noticed that a lot of these creative expressions actually came from people who have been on the front line, and I thought to myself that it was important to see what it was like to be. On the front line to be among the people and to experience what they experience in order to understand why or how they come up with these kind of creative expressions. And I also know that a lot of artists have also been on the front line. So I think to better communicate with them and also to understand their reaction and also their experience, what what it's like. To go through all these somewhat
1: traumatic experiences what kind of creative expressions are being created out of um, this turmoil?
0: There are a lot of creative expressions in various medium in graffiti, calligraphy I mean things that you can see in the streets and also a lot of these posters and designs and illustrations that's been circulated online. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most interesting things to me is how it forms a chain that connects the online world and, and the real world. So on one hand, you have all these illustrations and designs and going viral on the internet via various social media platforms or communication platforms. And then you see them in the street and protests. And then these images will be circulating back online. So it creates a circle that keeps the movement going and keeps the momentum. It's very interesting and it's not something that I have seen in Hong Kong in the
1: past. So you're saying that these protests that emerge from the online world are then pushed on by these visual cues that create this connection between online and real life. Are there any specific examples of some kind of imagery that has become very much associated with the protests?
0: One of the mascots of the protests is um, Pepe the Frog. Somehow young people in Hong Kong, they adopted the frog and reinvented different meaning for this
1: character and I mean, this alt-right symbol that that, that has been (laughs) adopted by white nationalists in the United States has become an emblem of the protests?
0: Yes. Initially, Pepper the Frog has been appearing in a discussion forum called LIHKG. is an online discussion forum popular among young people. If you want to post, you can only register with a university email address or an ISP email address. So you can't register with a Gmail
1: What does Pepe the Frog mean in Hong Kong?
0: I think it's a character that represents um, the people of Hong Kong in the movement. There have been so many different variations of the character. Sometimes you, you see Pepe the Frog wearing a face mask. Sometimes you see Pepe the Frog having an eye covered, referencing the people who have been shot in the eye. Sometimes you see an injured Pepe the Frog. It's a leaderless movement, and somehow Paper the Frog has become a face representing these people who have been participating in the movement
1: anonymously. So you mentioned the image of the girl with the bandaged eye, which I think became really widespread after there was one young woman who was blinded when she was shot by a rubber bullet directly in the eye intentionally. These are incredibly dangerous protests to be covering how violent have they been in your experience and what kind of precautions do you take to keep yourself safe
0: it's interesting when you ask me that because it's up to a point where if you haven't really experienced these things you haven't really been in hong kong (laughs) Usually, how things develop would be um, a standoff between um, protesters and the police. And then police would be raising different colors, different kinds of flags, you know, giving different warnings, asking people to um, disperse. Supposedly, they would raise the black flag before shooting anything. But uh, sometimes they raise the flag afterwards. I think that would be dangerous because if you don't give people warning that you will be tear gas and and whatnot, I mean, especially when there's a large crowd in a confined space, then that could be catastrophic. And there would be other uh, physical violence we have seen captured on on TV or live streaming. But then there are also a lot of verbal violence. People would be shouting at each other. A lot of people would be shouting at the police. I think the media has been portraying this protest as a young people's protest, which is true, because all the frontline people, they're mostly young people. But recently, I have also seen a lot more Aunties and uncles and middle-aged people, men and women, they are the ones who are shouting the loudest. Mm. They're shouting, they're screaming on top of their throats and accusing the police of making different kinds of mistakes. And then the police would be shouting back.
1: So what does it feel like to be out there? Are you scared? It
0: can be scary,
1: especially when I'm not trained
0: (laughs) to cover this kind of, (laughs) to cover this kind of event. The first time I came face-to-face with riot police, that was five years ago, the uh, Umbrella Movement. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was a culture beat reporter at the newspaper I used to work for, it was the scariest thing I could remember at the time. I could never imagine riot police in the streets of Hong Kong. Mm Because Hong Kong has always been so peaceful and everything's, you know, in order and very efficient and people well-behaved. Hong Kong has one of the lowest crime rates in the world. I just couldn't understand, like, what happened? What have people done wrong? Why do we need riot police in the streets back then? And then it turns out, uh, I mean, now looking back, what I saw five years ago, it was really nothing compared to what I've experienced these past seven months it can be very daunting, um, even if I have basic protection I mean gas mask, a helmet, an eye mask, and also the identification uh, the press identification, and I just have to stay alert all the time, just to make sure I'm aware of the situation around me, like for example, the January first protest. So over a million people took part in the protest, but then the rally was cut short because of vandalism of local shops in the area. And then the police cut short the rally and then they asked people to disband in 30 minutes, which was unreasonable because there were over a million people in the streets and how can you disband such a big crowd within such short Period of time, and then when I was in the streets, and that I could feel the vibe changing. I could hear, you know, people talking, and then spreading messages. Oh, there's something happening at the front, and we have to stop. Um, and we cannot move forward. And then the police will be coming, and and then water cannon and riot police would be uh, will be on their way. So I just have to stay very alert, and then. Uh, at then, at one point, they started shooting, and usually I would try to stay uh, keep a distance from the actual complex zone, but then sometimes non lethal weapons would be uh coming my way <laughs> and uh I think that well, i think that that day I was the closest to it um when i had when when there was a tear gas canister just exploding. Uh, next to me. But I have to thank my Japanese martial arts training. So I think I had the, 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 the muscle memories. I think the reflex was quick enough to when I heard the gunshot and that I, I, I ran already. So thankfully, I was not affected much. But it can be. It can be dangerous if you don't uh, have the awareness of the physical uh, environment.
1: So Vivian, that sounds truly harrowing. And I, I do want to uh, say that this is the art angle, <laughs> and when you're not out there covering these chaotic protests, you are an incredibly experienced art journalist. So let's see if we can pivot from the protest to what impact it's having on this other side of your profession. Is Hong Kong still viable as an art capital today?
0: I would say as of now, it still is because it's still a free market. And uh, compared to other places in the region, it's still practically a tax-free zone. It's still very efficient. I mean, the infrastructure hasn't really been damaged. And it's still technically a business-friendly place. But then I think the protests have been severely affecting people's moods. And you can really tell when you talk to gallerists and artists, it's it's very much their concern. I think their concern not necessarily coming out from an art perspective, but then because they all live here. And it's just natural, you know, being a a local uh, citizen. But I believe the true culprit of... The economic slowdown actually comes from the impact of the ongoing trade war
1: between the U.S. and China. Because, yeah, Hong Kong is in a recession right now. That has been taking a huge toll on the city. But at the same time, somehow the art market seems to be charging ahead. And I, I know Sotheby's just recently said that they made $208 million in contemporary art sales in Hong Kong branch alone last year which was its strongest year in history. So how how do you square these things with chaos in the streets and a trade war, and yet still the art scene is going along as usual?
0: There's always a myth about art auctions that when, when there's a crisis, sales of artworks would be going up. And maybe this reinforces that myth to a certain extent. I think for the four auctions in 2019, both for Sotheby's and Christie's, there have been a number of record-breaking um, sales. But that at the same time, if you look at the overall sales, I meaning not just contemporary art, but to look at all the like, Chinese works of art, which have been the actually core of the Hong Kong sales, they actually have been going down. So the overall sales actually went down compared to the same period that the year before. I think it does have an impact on the art sales, but I would argue it's more because of the trade war rather than a direct impact of the protests because the buyers they don't just come from Hong Kong. People who trade in Hong Kong especially for art there are definitely a lot of mainland Chinese. And there are also a lot of people from other places in the region. And Hong Kong is an open economy. So it's affected by the circumstances in the region around, so not necessarily just what's going on in the city. I mean, the protests, of course, they have an impact, but then we also have to take into account the ongoing trade war.
1: In your article, you write about the impact the protests have had on you personally. And in fact, you say that Your experience has made you see art in a completely different way. Can you explain what you meant by that?
0: I think I I don't like the way how art is defined only by the so-called elites. And you always need someone to tell you, oh, this is an artwork. Oh, that's not an artwork. It's a bit withdrawn from the real world. I think people come up with their own definition of what art means to them. And it's also an awakening of how people take art seriously and also include art in part of their daily lives. They might not be works of art that sold at auctions or at gallery spaces, but then it helps people connect with each other emotionally. I think that's something really huge because they recognize the need for an artistic and Creative expression
1: So last fall, you reported in an article for ArtNet that the curator Abby Chen told you that she believes the protests are actually a good thing for Hong Kong's art scene, saying, quote, "Artists in this generation are very lucky in this unfortunate turmoil because the greatest art is going to be produced in Hong Kong. What do you think she means by that?
0: Hong Kong has always been a safe place. Hong Kong has always been, you know, the financial center, orderly. I think in a place like that, you don't have that kind of emotional experience that you can transform into something else because you, you've you been so well taken care of. So I think she meant that this is unfortunate, but at the same time, it's also an opportunity for Hong Kong art to grow further.
1: Hmm.
0: Recently, I saw the show in Stockholm at the National Museum of Stockholm. It's called 1989. So it was an exhibition that chronicles everything that was happening in 1989, which we all know it was historically a very important year, especially for China and across um, Eastern Europe. It was chaotic. It was traumatic, uh, political turmoil. But then, it also gave artists the um, inspiration and opportunity to create works that were never produced before. There could be a chance for Hong Kong artists to do the same. But then, for galleries and institutions, I'm not sure. You know how things will go in future. How how much freedom they actually they, they have to show works that could be
1: political. So I have to ask, a big part of these protests is that people see this year of 2047 coming at them faster than they may have expected, at which point the Chinese government is going to officially take control of Hong Kong and be able to rule it however it wants. And... In the meantime, the city has gained this reputation as being a very liberal, Western, freedom-loving kind of capital of, of free expression and outspoken politics. Are you optimistic about the future of Hong Kong?
0: I think I remain cautiously optimistic. I think what we have learned so far is that, yes, China would want to have complete control. It actually has complete control over the city in many ways. But then Hong Kong has its own value and its value lies in being an international financial centre with a very vibrant stock market, freedom of information and easy capital inflow and outflow. And also the rule of law, which is in line with international practice So as long as these things are in place, I think Hong Kong is still fine.
1: Well, Vivian, I hope that you'll be able to go back to your ordinary job of writing about art and the art market sooner than later. Thank you very much for joining me on The Art Angle. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to The Art Angle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The show is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.